Chapter 12 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 12 The End of the Tether. Mr. Van Wyck, the white man of Batu Beru, an ex naval officer who, for reasons best known to himself, had thrown away the promise of a brilliant career to become a pioneer of tobacco planting on that remote part of the coast, had learned to like Captain Wally. The appearance of the new skipper had attracted his attention. Nothing more unlike all the diverse types he had seen succeeding each other on the bridge of the Safala could be imagined. At that time, Batu Beru was not what it has become since, the centre of a prosperous tobacco-growing district, a tropically suburban-looking little settlement of bungalows on one long street, shaded with two rows of trees, embowered by the flowering and trim luxuriance of the gardens, with a three-mile-long carriage road for the afternoon drives and a first-class resident, with a fat, cheery wife to lead the society of married estate managers and unmarried young fellows in the service of the big companies. All this prosperity was not yet, and Mr. Van Wyck prospered alone on the left bank on his deep clearing carved out of the forest which came down above and below to the water's edge. His lonely bungalow faced across the river the houses of the Sultan, a restless and melancholy old ruler who had done with love and war, for whom life no longer held any savour except of evil forebodings, and time never had any value. He was afraid of death and hoped he would die before the white men were ready to take his country from him. He crossed the river frequently, with never less than ten boats crammed full of people, in the wistful hope of extracting some information on the subject from his own white man. There was a certain chair on the veranda he always took, the dignitaries of the court squatted on the rugs and skins between the furniture. The inferior people remained below on the grass plot between the house and the river, in rows of three or four deep all along the front. Not seldom the visit began at daybreak. Mr. Van Wyck tolerated these inroads. He would nod out of his bedroom window, toothbrush or razor in hand, or pass through the throng of courtiers in his bathing robe, he appeared and disappeared, humming a tune, polished his nails with attention, rubbed his shaved face with eau de cologne, drank his early tea, went out to see his coolies at work, returned, looked through some papers on his desk, read a page or two in a book, or sat before his cottage piano, leaning back on the stool, his arms extended, fingers on the keys, his body swaying slightly from side to side. When absolutely forced to speak, he gave evasive, vaguely soothing answers out of pure compassion. The same feeling, perhaps, made him so lavishly hospitable with the aerated drinks that more than once he left himself without soda water for a whole week. That old man had granted him as much land as he cared to have cleared. It was neither more nor less than a fortune. Whether it was fortune, or seclusion from his own kind, that Mr. Van Wyck sought, he could not have pitched upon a better place. Even the mailboats of the subsidised company calling on the various clusters of palm-thatched hovels along the coast steamed past the mouth of Batu Beru River, far away in the offing. The contract was old. Perhaps in a few years' time, when it had expired, Batu Beru would be included in the service. Meantime, all Mr. Van Wyck's mail was addressed to Malacca, whence his agent sent it across once a month by the Safala. 
It followed that whenever Massey had run short of money, through taking too many lottery tickets, or got into a difficulty about a skipper, Mr Van Wyck was deprived of his letters and newspapers. In so far, he had a personal interest in the fortunes of the Sofala. Though he considered himself a hermit, and for no passing whim evidently since he had stood eight years of it already, he liked to know what went on in the world. Handy on the veranda upon a walnut etagere, it had come last year by the Sofala, everything came by the Sofala, there lay, piled up under bronze weights, a pile of the Times weekly edition, the large sheets of the Rotterdam Courant, the graphic in its worldwide green wrappers, an illustrated Dutch publication without a cover, the numbers of a German magazine with covers of the Bismarck Malade colour. There were also parcels of new music, though the piano, it had come years ago by the Safala, in the damp atmosphere of the forests was generally out of tune. It was vexing to be cut off from everything for sixty days at a stretch sometimes without any means of knowing what was the matter. And when the Safala reappeared, Mr. Van Wyck would descend the steps of the veranda and stroll over the grass plot in front of his house down to the waterside with a frown on his white brow. You've been laid up after an accident, I presume. He addressed the bridge, but before anybody could answer, Massey was sure to have already scrambled ashore over the rail and pushed in, squeezing the palms of his hands together, bowing his sleek head as if gummed all over the top with black threads and tapes. And he would be so enraged at the necessity of having to offer such an explanation that his moaning would be positively pitiful, while all the time he tried to compose his big lips into a smile. No, Mr. Van Wyck, you would not believe it. I couldn't get one of those wretches to take the ship out. Not a single one of the lazy beasts could be induced, and the law, you know, Mr. Van Wyck. He moaned at great length apologetically. The words conspiracy, plot, envy came out prominently, whined with greater energy. Mr. Van Wyck, examining with a faint grimace his polished fingernails, would say, Hmm, very unfortunate, and turn his back on him. Fastidious, clever, slightly sceptical, accustomed to the best society, he had held a much-envied shore appointment at the Ministry of Marine for a year preceding his retreat from his profession and from Europe. He possessed a latent warmth of feeling and a capacity for sympathy which were concealed by a sort of haughty, arbitrary indifference of manner arising from his early training, and by a something an enemy might have called foppish in his aspect like a distorted echo of past elegance. He managed to keep an almost military discipline amongst the coolies of the estate he had dragged into the light of day out of the tangle and shadows of the jungle, and the white shirt he put on every evening with its stiff glossy front and high collar looked as if he had meant to preserve the decent ceremony of evening dress, but had wound a thick crimson sash above his hips as a concession to the wilderness, once his adversary, now his vanquished companion. Moreover, it was a hygienic precaution. Worn wide open in front, a short jacket of some airy silken stuff floated from his shoulders. His fluffy fair hair, thin at the top, curled slightly at the sides, a carefully arranged moustache, an ungarnished forehead, the gleam of low patent shoes peeping under the wide bottom of trousers cut straight from the same stuff as the gossamer coat, completed a figure recalling, with its sash, a pirate chief of romance, 
and at the same time the elegance of a slightly bald dandy indulging in seclusion, a taste for unorthodox costume. It was his evening get-up. The proper time for the Safala to arrive at Batu Beru was an hour before sunset, and he looked picturesque and somehow quite correct too, walking at the water's edge on the background of grass slope crowned with a low, long bungalow with an immensely steep roof of palm thatch and clad to the eaves in flowering creepers. While the Safala was being made fast, he strolled in the shade of the few trees left near the landing place, waiting till he could go on board. The white men were not of his kind. The old sultan, though his wistful invasions were a nuisance, was really much more acceptable to his fastidious taste. But still, they were white. The periodical visits of the ship made a break in the well-filled sameness of the days without disturbing his privacy. Moreover, they were necessary from a business point of view, and through a strain of preciseness in his nature he was irritated when she failed to appear at the appointed time. The cause of the irregularity was too absurd, and Massey, in his opinion, was a contemptible idiot. The first time the Cephala reappeared under the new agreement, swinging out of the bend below, after he had almost given up all hope of ever seeing her again, he felt so angry that he did not go down at once to the landing place. His servants had come running to him with the news, and he had dragged a chair close against the front rail of the veranda spread his elbows out, rested his chin on his hands, and went on glaring at her fixedly while she was being made fast opposite his house. He could make out easily all the white faces on board. Who on earth was that kind of patriarch they had got there on the bridge now? At last he sprang up and walked down the gravel path. It was a fact that the very gravel for his paths had been imported by the Sofala. Exasperated out of his quiet superciliousness, without looking at anyone right or left, he accosted Massey straightway in so determined a manner that the engineer, taken aback, began to stammer unintelligibly. Nothing could be heard but the words, Mr. Van Wick, indeed, Mr. Van Wick, for the future, Mr. Van Wick. And by the suffusion of blood, Massey's vast bilious face acquired an unnatural orange tint, out of which the disconcerted coal-black eyes shone in an extraordinary manner. Nonsense! I am tired of this. I wonder you have the impudence to come alongside my jetty as if I had it made for your convenience alone. Massey tried to protest earnestly. Mr. Van Wick was very angry. He had a good mind to ask that German firm, those people in Malacca, what was their name? Boats with green funnels. They would be only too glad of the opening to put one of their small steamers on the run. Yes, Schnitzler, Jacob Schnitzler, would in a moment. Yes, he had decided to write without delay. In his agitation, Massey caught up his falling pipe. You don't mean it, sir, he shrieked. You shouldn't mismanage your business in this ridiculous manner. Mr. Van Wick turned on his heel. The other three whites on the bridge had not stirred during the scene. Massey walked hastily from side to side, puffed at his cheeks, suffocated. Stack up, Dutchman! And he moaned out feverishly a long tale of griefs. The efforts he had made for all these years to please that man. This was the return you got for it, eh? Pretty, right to Schnitzler, let in the green funnel boat, get an old Hamburg Jew to ruin him. No, really, he could laugh. He laughed, sobbingly, ha, 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 and make him carry the letter in his own ship, presumably. He 
he stumbled across a grating and swore. He would not hesitate to fling the Dutchman's correspondence overboard, the whole confounded bundle. He had never, never made any charge for that accommodation. But Captain Wally, his new partner, would not let him, probably. Besides, it would only be putting off the evil day. For his own part, he would make a hole in the water rather than look on tamely at the green funnels overrunning his trade. He raved aloud. The China boys hung back with the dishes at the foot of the ladder. He yelled from the bridge down at the deck, Aren't we going to have any chow this evening at all? Then turned violently to Captain Wally, who waited, grave and patient, at the head of the table, smoothing his beard in silence now and then with a forbearing gesture. You don't seem to care what happens to me. Don't you see that this affects your interest as much as mine? It's no joking matter. He took the foot of the table, growling between his teeth. Unless you have a few thousands put away somewhere, I haven't. Mr. Van Wick dined in his thoroughly lit-up bungalow, putting a point of splendour in the night of his clearing above the dark bank of the river. Afterwards he sat down to his piano, and in a pause he became aware of slow footsteps passing on the path along the front. A plank or two creaked under a heavy tread. He swung half round on the music stool, listening with his fingertips at rest on the keyboard. His little terrier barked violently, backing in from the veranda. A deep voice apologised gravely for this intrusion. He walked out quickly. At the head of the steps, the patriarchal figure, who was the new captain of the Safala, apparently, he had seen around dozen of them, but not one of that sort, towered without advancing. The little dog barked unceasingly, till a flick of Mr Van Wick's handkerchief made him spring aside into silence. Captain Wally, opening the matter, was met by a punctiliously polite but determined opposition. They carried on their discussion, standing where they had come face to face. Mr Van Wick observed his visitor with attention. Then at last, as if forced out of his reserve, I am surprised that you should intercede for such a confounded fool. This outbreak was almost complimentary, as if its meaning had been that such a man as you should intercede. Captain Wally let it pass by without flinching. One would have thought he had heard nothing. He simply went on to state that he was personally interested in putting things straight between them, personally. But Mr Van Wick, really carried away by his disgust with Massey, became very incisive. Indeed, if I am to be frank with you, his whole character does not seem to me particularly estimable or trustworthy. Captain Wally, always straight, seemed to grow an inch taller and broader, as if the girth of his chest had suddenly expanded under his beard. My dear sir, you don't think I came here to discuss a man with whom I am, I am, hmm, closely associated? A sort of solemn silence lasted for a moment. He was not used to asking favours, but the importance he attached to this affair had made him willing to try. Mr. Van Wick, favourably impressed and suddenly mollified by a desire to laugh, interrupted. That's all right if you make it a personal matter, but you can do no less than sit down and smoke a cigar with me. A slight pause, then Captain Wally stepped forward heavily. As to the regularity of the service, for the future he made himself responsible for it, and his name was Wally, perhaps to a sailor. He was speaking to a sailor, was he not? Not altogether unfamiliar? There was a lighthouse now, on an island. Maybe Mr. Van Wick himself. Oh, yes, oh, indeed. Mr. Van Wick caught on at once. 
He indicated a chair. How very interesting. For his own part, he had seen some service in the last Achin War, but had never been so far east. Wally Island, of course. Now that was very interesting. What changes his guest must have seen since? I can look further back even on a whole half century. Captain Wally expanded a bit. The flavour of a good cigar, it was a weakness, had gone straight to his heart, also the civility of that young man. There was something in that accidental contact of which he had been starved in his years of struggle. The front wall retreating made a square recess furnished like a room. A lamp with a milky glass shade suspended below the slope of the high roof at the end of a slender brass chain threw a bright round of light upon a little table bearing an open book and an ivory paper knife. And in the translucent shadows beyond, other tables could be seen, a number of easy chairs of various shapes, with a great profusion of skin rugs strewn on the teakwood planking all over the veranda. The flowering creepers scented the air, their foliage clipped out between the uprights, made as if several frames of thick, unstirring leaves, reflecting the lamplight in a green glow. Through the opening at his elbow, Captain Wally could see the gangway lantern of the Safala burning dim by the shore, the shadowy masses of the town beyond the open, lustrous darkness of the river, and, as if hung along the straight edge of the projecting eaves, a narrow black strip of the night sky full of stars, resplendent. The famous cigar in hand, he had a moment of complacency. A trifle. Someone must lead the way. I just showed that the thing could be done, but you men brought up to the use of steam cannot conceive the vast importance of my bit of venturesomeness to the eastern trade of the time. Why, that new route reduced the average time of a southern passage by eleven days for more than half the year. Eleven days. It's on record. But the remarkable thing, speaking to a sailor, I should say, was. He talked well, without egotism, professionally. The powerful voice, produced without effort, filled the bungalow even into the empty rooms with a deep and limpid resonance, seemed to make a stillness outside. And Mr. Van Wyck was surprised by the serene quality of its tone, like the perfection of manly gentleness. Nursing one small foot in a silk sock and a patent leather shoe on his knee, he was immensely entertained. It was as if nobody could talk like this now, and the overshadowed eyes, the flowing white beard, the big frame, the serenity, the whole temper of the man were an amazing survival from the prehistoric times of the world coming up to him out of the sea. Captain Wally had been also the pioneer of the early trade in the Gulf of Pachi Lee. He even found occasion to mention that he had buried his dear wife there six and twenty years ago. Mr. Van Wyck, impassive, could not help speculating in his mind swiftly as to the sort of woman that would mate with such a man. Did they make an adventurous and well-matched pair? No. Very possible she had been small, frail, no doubt very feminine, or most likely commonplace, with domestic instincts utterly insignificant. But Captain Wally was no garrulous bore, and shaking his head as if to dissipate the momentary gloom that had settled on his handsome old face, he alluded conversationally to Mr. Van Wyck's solitude. Mr. Van Wyck affirmed that sometimes he had more company than he wanted. He mentioned, smilingly, some of the peculiarities of his intercourse with my sultan. 
He made his visits in force. Those people damaged his grass plot in front. It was not easy to obtain some approach to a lawn in the tropics. And the other day had broken down some rare bushes he had planted over there. And Captain Wiley remembered immediately that in 47 the then Sultan, this man's grandfather, had been notorious as a great protector of the piratical fleets of prows from farther east. They had a safe refuge in the river at Batu Beru. He financed more especially a Balanini chief called Haji Daman. Captain Wally, nodding significantly his bushy white eyebrows, had very good reason to know something of that. The world had progressed since that time. Mr. Van Wyck demurred with unexpected acrimony. Progressed in what, he wanted to know. Why, in knowledge of truth, in decency, in justice, in order. In honesty, too, since men harmed each other mostly from ignorance. It was, Captain Wally concluded quaintly, more pleasant to live in. Mr. Van Wyck whimsically would not admit that Mr. Massey, for instance, was more pleasant naturally than the Balanini pirates. The river had not gained much by the change. They were, in their way, every bit as honest. Massey was less ferocious than Haji Daman, no doubt, but... And what about you, my good sir? Captain Wally laughed, a good deep laugh. You are an improvement, surely. He continued in a vein of pleasantry. A good cigar was better than a knock on the head, the sort of welcome he would have found on this river forty or fifty years ago. Then, leaning forward slightly, he became earnestly serious. It seems as if, outside their own sea-gypsy tribes, these rovers had hated all mankind with an incomprehensible, bloodthirsty hatred. Meantime, their depredations had been stopped, and what was the consequence? The new generation was orderly, peaceable, settled in prosperous villages. He could speak from personal knowledge. And even the few survivors of that time, old men now, had changed so much that it would have been unkind to remember against them that they'd ever slit a throat in their lives. He had one especially in his mind's eye, a dignified, venerable headman of a certain large coast village about sixty miles southwest of Tampa Suck. It did one's heart good to see him, to hear that man speak. He might have been a ferocious savage once, what men wanted was to be checked by superior intelligence, by superior knowledge, by superior force too, yes, by force, held in trust from God and sanctified by its use in accordance with his declared will. Captain Wally believed a disposition for good existed in every man, even if the world were not a very happy place as a whole. In the wisdom of men he had not so much confidence. The disposition had to be helped up pretty sharply sometimes, he admitted, they might be silly, wrong-headed, unhappy, but naturally evil, no. There was, at bottom, a complete harmlessness, at least. Is there? Mr. Van Wyck snapped acrimoniously. Captain Wally laughed at the interjection, in the good humour of large, tolerating certitude. He could look back at half a century, he pointed out. The smoke oozed placidly through the white hairs, hiding his kindly lips. At all events, he murmured after a pause, I'm glad that they've had no time to do you much harm as yet. This allusion to his comparative youthfulness did not offend Mr. Van Wyck, who got up and wriggled his shoulders with an enigmatic half-smile. They walked out together amicably into the starry night towards the riverside. Their footsteps resounded unequally on the dark path. At the shore end of the gangway, the lantern, hung low to the handrail, 
threw a vivid light on the white legs and the big black feet of Mr. Massey waiting about anxiously. From the waist upward he remained shadowy, with a row of buttons gleaming up to the vague outline of his chin. "'You may thank Captain Wally for this,' Mr. Van Wick said curtly to him before turning away. The lamps on the veranda hung three long squares of light between the uprights far over the grass. A bat flitted before his face like a circling flake of velvety blackness. Along the jasmine hedge the night air seemed heavy with the fall of perfumed dew. Flowerbeds bordered the path. The clipped bushes uprose in dark rounded clumps here and there before the house. The dense foliage of creepers filtered the sheen of the lamplight within in a soft glow all along the front, and everything near and far stood still in a great immobility in a great sweetness. Mr. Van Wick, a few years before, he had had occasion to imagine himself treated more badly than anybody alive had ever been by a woman, felt for Captain Wally's optimistic views the disdain of a man who had once been credulous himself. His disgust with the world, the woman for a time had filled it for him completely, had taken the form of activity in retirement, because, though capable of great depth of feeling, he was energetic and essentially practical. But there was in that uncommon old sailor, drifting on the outskirts of his busy solitude, something that fascinated his scepticism. His very simplicity, amusing enough, was like a delicate refinement of an upright character, the striking dignity of manner could be nothing else in a man reduced to such a humble position but the expression of something essentially noble in the character. With all his trust in mankind, he was no fool. The serenity of his temper at the end of so many years, since it could not obviously have been appeased by success, wore an air of profound wisdom. Mr. Van Wick was amused at it sometimes. Even the very physical traits of the old captain of the Cephala, his powerful frame, his reposeful mien, his intelligent handsome face, the big limbs, the benign courtesy, the touch of rugged severity and the shaggy eyebrows, made up a seductive personality. Mr. Van Wick disliked littleness of every kind, but there was nothing small about that man, and in the exemplary regularity of many trips, an intimacy had grown up between them. A warm feeling at bottom, under a kindly stateliness of forms, agreeable to his fastidiousness. They kept their respective opinions on all worldly matters. His other convictions, Captain Wally, never intruded. The difference of their ages was like another bond between them. Once, when twitted with the uncharitableness of his youth, Mr. Van Wick, running his eye over the vast proportions of his interlocutor, retorted in friendly banter, Oh, you'll come to my way of thinking yet. You'll have plenty of time. Don't call yourself old. You look good for a round hundred. But he could not help his stinging incisiveness, and though moderating it by an almost affectionate smile, he added, And by then you will probably consent to die from sheer disgust. Captain Wally, smiling too, shook his head. God forbid. He thought that perhaps on the whole he deserved something better than to die in such sentiments. The time, of course, would have to come, and he trusted to his maker to provide a manner of going out of which he need not be ashamed. For the rest, he hoped he would live to a hundred if need be. Other men had been known. It would be no miracle. 
he expected no miracles. The pronounced argumentative tone caused Mr. Van Wyck to raise his head and look at him steadily. Captain Wally was gazing fixedly with a rapt expression as though he had seen his creator's favourable decree written in mysterious characters on the wall. He kept perfectly motionless for a few seconds, then got his vast bulk onto his feet so impetuously that Mr. Van Wyck was startled. He struck first a heavy blow on his inflated chest and throwing out horizontally a big arm that remained steady, extended in the air like the limb of a tree on a windless day. Not a pain or an ache there. Can you see this shake in the least? His voice was low in an awing, confident contrast with the headlong emphasis of his movements. He sat down abruptly. This isn't to boast of it, you know. I am nothing, he said in his effortless, strong voice that seemed to come out as naturally as a river flows. He picked up the stump of the cigar he had laid aside and added peacefully, with a slight nod, as it happens, my life is necessary. It isn't my own. It isn't. God knows. He did not say much for the rest of the evening, but several times Mr. Van Wyck detected a faint smile of assurance flitting under the heavy moustache. Later on, Captain Wally would now and then consent to dine at the house. He could even be induced to drink a glass of wine. Don't think I am afraid of it, my good sir, he explained. There was a very good reason why I should give it up. On another occasion, leaning back at ease, he remarked, You have treated me most, most humanely, my dear Mr. Van Wyck, from the very first. You'll admit there was some merit, Mr. Van Wyck hinted slyly. An associate of that excellent Massey. Well, well, my dear Captain, I won't say a word against him. It would be no use your saying anything against him, Captain Wally affirmed a little moodily. As I've told you before, my life, my work is necessary, not for myself alone. I can't choose. He paused, turned the glass before him right round. I have an only child, a daughter. The ample downward sweep of his arm over the table seemed to suggest a small girl at a vast distance. I hope to see her once more before I die. Meantime, it's enough to know that she has me sound and solid, thank God. You can't understand how one feels, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the very image of my poor wife. Well, she... Again he paused, then pronounced stoically the words. She has a hard struggle. And his head fell on his breast. His eyebrows remained knitted as if by an effort of meditation. But generally his mind seemed steeped in the serenity of boundless trust in a higher power. Mr. Van Wyck wondered sometimes how much of it was due to the splendid vitality of the man, to the bodily vigour which seemed to impart something of its force to the soul. But he had learned to like him very much. End of chapter 12